We're going to do something new today for the next couple of weeks that I'm excited about. Um, we just finished a couple kind of in long and different kinds of sermon series. If you were with us all summer, we studied the book of James together for the entire longer than the summer. That was a fun expository study. And then the last few weeks, we did something topical. We uh, kind of do both around here. So we uh, did a series on finances, how to get ahead. And, and we're kind of done. And we're not going to start a series per se for a little bit here. We're going to take the next couple of weeks and have a little fun. And here's, here's the catch. Here's the, here's the reason. In case you didn't notice, this is October. And besides all the good things like football and changing the colors and stuff, this is the month when on two Sundays from today will be October 31st, which is Halloween. Now, how you feel about Halloween is, is probably could vary. I've been in church world a long time, and with religious people, you get a variety of emotions about various holidays. Some people are very, you know, just all over the place. Some of you, for, when it comes to Halloween, maybe the most of all, you get the variety of, of people's uh, added uh, outlooks on Halloween. Some of you, you're like, oh yeah, I'm coming. I'm, I'm dressing up like the kids with getting candy. I'm going door to door, you know, and uh, I can't wait. I'm going to be one of those uh, Squid Games people, you know. I'm going to be, I'm, this, is, this is happening. Um, and then others are um, maybe saying, oh, I would never, you know, we're going to have a harvest festival, if anything. I don't know what you do. And I know that people treat it all differently. And honestly, I don't care. I, you know me by now. We just don't, I just, those are unimportant issues to me. People, as long as they live, will divide about how and what you do and don't do and, and all that kind of stuff. And I don't get caught up in the, the hoopla. I have a lot of opinions, but I don't think they're all worth uh, using your voice to talk about. So, you do you, and that'll be fine. But regardless of how you approach uh, October 31st and how you enjoy the festivities of the season, you can't get away from the fact that there's a lot of imagery around us, can you? I mean, like you go to um, uh, your neighbor's house probably has goblins and ghosts and uh, skeletons in the yard, right, somewhere. Uh, and those are fun places. Um, or your TV channels or your streaming services like Netflix probably are showcasing a whole bunch of scary movies right now. Uh, boy, that's, that's, a, that's an adrenaline rush right there, uh, sitting there and curling up on the couch with your feet tucked up under the blanket because you're just waiting for the next jump scare. Whatever you, wherever you are and all that, um, this is the time of year you can't avoid the scary and the spooky atmospheres around you. The reminders, even your candy wrappings remind you that Halloween's coming. So I thought, well, since we're here, let's have some fun with it. So we're going to take the next couple of weeks and we're going to look at what we're going to call some spooky Bible stories. There are some Bible stories that are absolutely spooky. And you can't, you can't deny it. I mean, it's just like, what in the world? And, and they're, it, you don't have to even embellish them. It just, it, you have to, just have to basically not look at them as flannel graph Bible stories. You've got to look at them as what they were. They were terrifying. And so we're going to tell them like we're sitting around a campfire. You're trying to scare the kids at campfire time, you know, with a story. Or perhaps... Um, not, maybe not a campfire, but maybe you ever go into your house and you build like a tent by putting blankets over your chairs or your, or your table and you get underneath that. If you're a young person, I know the kids are next door in their kids' area, but if you're young enough to, to do that or if you're old enough to not care about what people think of you anymore, you, we should go home and do that again. Like build a tent under, over your table and get underneath that tent and get a flashlight under your face and shine it straight up so the shadows are eerie and you tell stories to scare the other people around you, right? So anyhow, uh, this is one of those, those stories you can tell around the campfire or with the flashlight. Some spooky Bible stories. And a couple of these stories... They end well. They end well for the people involved. But one of the stories we're going to see in these, today and the next two weeks after this, one of the stories does not end well for the people involved. 
And isn't that how good scary shows and stories go? Sometimes they turn out, sometimes they don't. And so this, we're going to have a little bit of both here. But we're going to look at some spooky Bible stories. And today, we're going to talk about the monster in the graveyard. That's where we're going to go today. The monster, the monster in the graveyard. Now, a graveyard's a great place for scary stuff, Right? I don't know if you like to, how many of you ever go to a cemetery other than to a funeral or to visit a loved one there? I used to one time walk around a cemetery because it was a place I could get off the road and kind of have some quiet reflection to pray. Now I have other spots that are much better for that. But some people like to go there at nighttime and scare themselves walking through the cemetery, you know. I don't know if that's you or not, but that's the graveyard and the monster in the graveyard. That's, that's creepy. Cedar Lake, by the way, we have a cemetery in Cedar Lake. Town's growing, but there's been one cemetery in our town. It's been there for a long time. It's on 41. You mostly know where it's at, right? It's on 41 South. You might not know this if you've not lived here a long time, or even if you have lived here, but you don't go to the town council meetings. Some of you might not know this, even if you've been here. But did you know they actually passed a law? Uh, the town council, they passed a law some years back that no one living in Cedar Lake can be buried in that cemetery. It's true. You, you, you have to die first. Okay, I'm sorry. That was a dad joke. Okay, that was my, that was my moment for the day. But anyhow, um, uh, today we're going to see the story of the monster in the graveyard. <laughs> it's a fair point. Okay. Um, what I wanted to say is this. The story we're going to look at today is found in Matthew and Mark and Luke. We're not going to look at all three because that's just too much. We're going to look mainly at Mark's version of the story because Mark does a really awesome job telling the story. But um, we're going to peek at Luke a couple times because he gives an extra little color commentary that I want to borrow from. But we're basically going to be in Mark. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, it'll be Mark chapter 5, and we'll glance at Luke chapter 8 as well at some point. But before we get there, I want to tell you that right before this story takes place, right before this story, Jesus and the disciples are crossing over the lake or the sea. You'll see it called the sea or the lake at different times. Like, which is it? Is it a sea or is it a lake? And those of us who live in this area by the Great Lakes ought to understand lakes that are big enough to be like seas, right? And so this is a very large lake or a sea. They, they're, they're crossing over on a boat, and they had a storm come. You know the story, the storm came, and they were all scared, and Jesus was asleep. And they wake him up, and they're terrified. And Jesus says, peace, be still to the storm, and the storm just stops. And then the disciples are even more afraid, because they're like, who can say, peace, be still, and make a storm stop? So they're kind of all freaked out. So now they land, and that's where our story picks up today in Mark chapter 5. Let's get started. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. This region, by the way, would be um, uh, an area near uh, a, a bunch of cities. Actually, it was called Decapolis, which, of course, if you understand the Greek term there, means ten, ten cities, Decapolis. Uh, the Greek influence before the Roman influence was there. And the Decapolis area, uh, 10 cities all around, a lot of people, a commerce. And of course, most people built cities by bodies of water, right? Because that's, we still do that, right? So Decapolis area in the area of the Gerasenes. That's where Jesus landed after the story on the boat with the storm. Verse number two, when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. Well, this is shaping up nicely so far. So Jesus comes out of the boat. Here's this man coming out of a cemetery. 
Now, I want to pause real quick. It says he's possessed by an evil spirit. There's a conversation right there that we could have for an entire sermon that I'm not going to do because that's not the battle we're going to, that's not, we're going to take our time for today. But people often ask about evil spirits and what does this mean and what, do you see more today? Or we, see, seem, seem, we seem to see so much less of that today in our personal daily lives than Jesus seemed to see regularly in his day. And, you know, what, what, what's your view? And there's a whole fun conversation that I'd love to have sometime, but it's not the subject of today. I'll only say this. That one, one thing is very sure that Jesus dealt with a large per capita, he dealt with a large number of people who were demonically possessed or had evil spirits. And more than you and I will ever encounter and understand on, on, a, on a normal, regular front for most of us today. Why is that? N, uh, Bible scholar and communicator N.T. Wright uh, uh, recently was talking about this. And he said that, um, he made a good observation. He said that Jesus was kind of a, mag a magnet for spiritual force and spiritual darkness when he came. Like, you picture where Jesus was at 2,000 years ago? This was the epicenter of history moment of the world where Jesus was going to die on the cross as prophesied for thousands of years before and been celebrated for thousands of years since. This epicenter place and time, Jesus came 30 years before his ministry started and then he walked the, then for three years ministered and then died and went to spiritual battle, right, on the cross and the resurrection. And while he was here, he was like a spiritual magnet for, for the forces of darkness and the, the, just the, the, the bad around him. That's why he had so many interactions and things that just seemed like, wow, there's a lot of that there. That's an explanation. Maybe that's a satisfactory explanation for you. Maybe it's not. It doesn't matter. It's just an observation I thought I'd pass along for your uh, thoughts. But Jesus is coming out of the boat, and this man is coming out of the cemetery, creepy, possessed by an evil spirit to meet Jesus. Let's keep reading here. This man lived in the burial caves. Pause. So you have cemeteries or tombstones, as some translations say, but you also have these caves where people are buried. Maybe you Picture going to a big cemetery today. You go to the cemetery and you walk in and they have a lot of tombstones, but maybe they have a house, a building, right? And you walk into the building and there's like a crypt or, you know, you know above ground people put there in the crypt. So picture this the cemetery with all these gravestones, and then you have a cave with maybe some crypts and some things inside of there as well. And here's this guy who lives out there near the cemetery in these burial caves. And the Bible says that he could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Well, that sounds intense. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. That's terrifying. This is a guy who, notice it says no one was strong enough. In other words, no one person could handle this guy. No one person. He was, so, he was possessed, and he was powerful, and no one person could handle him. So what would happen as you read the story is a whole bunch of strong men would come together, and they would perhaps pin this guy down. And they would fight and wrestle him and it would be tough. And they would block him in chains. But as soon as he was independent of the, of the physical show of force, he was struggling to break the chains and smash the shackles. Terrifying, uncontrollable, possessed man. No one could subdue. This is the background of our story. In fact, verse 5 says this, Day, day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Yikes. 
Like, this is the kind of times your parents tell you the kids stories when they're little. Do not wander away from the house to the hills. Do not, teenagers, do not go there with your friends by day, but especially by night. And definitely not alone, because there's a crazy man up there. You hear that howling? Yeah, that's not a wolf. That's, that's the guy. Stay away. Cutting himself, just cutting himself with sharp stones. I mean, it's just an intense, scary, terrifying, watch out for this man. Several showmen can subdue him, but when they, when they can't, he runs away. They, they, he tries to come to town, they try to subdue him. He, he breaks away, but they go out there to get him. He, he leaves, and they just leave him alone to cut himself and, and howl and run around like a crazy person who's possessed in the middle of the cemetery. How are we doing? Okay. Well, let's keep reading. Verse number, uh, let's, look, let's look at Luke real quick here because Luke tells some details that I want, want us to notice as well for some color. Luke 8.27 says it this way, As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time he had been homeless and naked, living in a cemetery outside the town. So now we see some more detail. He's homeless. I mean, it makes sense, right? If he had a wife, at some point, was he, was he ever married? Was he this way since he was younger? Was he, did something happen to him that, that made this event occur as an adult? Did he have a family? Did he have kids? I don't know. Probably had parents somewhere that were both scared and terrified and, and embarrassed and worried and hurt by what was happening to their son. I don't know, but he's homeless. He couldn't stay in the town. Every time he came there, they tried to tie him up. He left. He's homeless and he's naked. That's terrifying. One thing you can see on him besides his... Nothingness is all the cuts he was making from the sharp stones. So, so this is crazy. In fact, verse 29, Luke 8, 29 says this. Um, Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness completely under the demon's power. Yikes. Okay, so this is the background of our story. Let's see what happens. In Mark chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, When Jesus when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. So picture the scenario. Jesus is getting off the boat and landing. This man's living in the hills in the cemetery. He comes running down. Jesus is walking in land. He's running. He gets to Jesus, and he throws himself down, and he bows down really low before Jesus. Now, this is, verse 7 is kind of creepy, so just don't rush past the, the, the imagery here. With a shriek, it says, with a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, in the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. With a shriek, he screamed. My goodness. Verse 8 gives us some more detail. For Jesus had already said to the Spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. So, so they, they put the verse after, the, they kind of changed the order of how it went down, so don't miss that. Jesus comes out, the guy runs, throws himself down in front of Jesus, and Jesus knows what's happening and says, come out from that man, you evil spirit. And what's the response? Immediate obedience? Does the spirit leave? No. The spirit begins to argue back, to push back. The spirit says, what are you doing, Jesus? Son of the most high God. And then the, spirit, the evil spirit says, in the name of God, I beg you, Leave me alone. What in the world? Well, you're not being left alone. Why wouldn't Jesus leave him alone? 
Because Jesus knew it wasn't the man saying, leave me alone. It was the demonic voice. And he says, I'm not going to leave him alone. But, 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 the, but he already said, get out. And the, and the demon's still saying, I beg you, in the name of God, leave us alone. Don't torture us. Don't torture us. So Jesus continues this conversation with this poor guy. Well, not with a guy, but with the occupant inside this poor guy. Verse 9, then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside of this man. Now, now that's interesting right there. First of all, if anyone was gathered nearby and didn't know what was going on, they might not have understood Jesus' question. Because they see a guy talking to them, but it really wasn't the guy talking to them. The guy was simply being a conduit, a, a channel for this, to use his body, his voice to speak, the, the evil spirit speaking. So you hear the man speaking, his body's responding, but it's not him responding, it's the spirits. And so Jesus says to this man, it seems like he's saying to the man, what's your name? And maybe the disciples are thinking, he's, the guy's going to say, oh, my name is Joe. But Jesus wasn't asking that. He was, he, Jesus knew who he was talking to. And through the man's body, with the man's voice, the Spirit says, my name is Legion. Because there are many of us inside of this man. Now that's an, an interesting term that maybe we don't appreciate in today's culture. The word Legion there was very common then because the Roman Empire was a powerhouse, a world power. And they occupied all these countries like Israel. And everyone knew what a Roman Legion was. A Roman legion would be a, a gathering of a thousand Roman soldiers. So this demon says, uh, my name is Legion. There's many of us inside of this man. So some take it so literally and speculate that the, the, the demon was saying there's literally 1,000 demons exactly inside of this man. Others would say, well, the man was actually saying, the man was actually saying, like a legion is a whole lot of soldiers, Think of it in those terms. There's just a many of us. Maybe not exactly a thousand, but there's many of us. Either way, it doesn't matter. He's basically saying, this is powerful. This is huge. And, and apparently this one voice was, was speaking on behalf of the rest, like a stronger demonic voice amongst all the evil spirits was the one doing the talking. My name is Legion because there are many of us inside of this man. Can you picture this crazy, intense story? Verse 10, then the evil spirits begged him, begged Jesus, again and again. They already did it earlier, again and again, not to send them to some distant place. Now, Luke says some distant place. If you read, I'm sorry, Mark says a distant place. Luke says it this way, they begged Jesus not to send them to the bottomless pit. We understand the bottomless pit, so you understand the, the, the spiritual, we understand the, 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 the narrative that we've been taught in the scriptures about how that Lucifer and, his, and, and a third of the angels rebelled against God in heaven, and they were cast out, and now we have Satan or the devil and his, his minions, his demons, and, and they have a final judgment coming one day in hellfire. We understand that uh, hell was created as an pl eternal place for the devil and his, his uh, demons. We understand that idea. And we understand that they're, they're here and on the earth causing trouble as we read the Bible and, and understand what we can see about the subject. And here's these demons saying to Jesus, don't send us off into the bottomless pit now. I know that day's coming for us. But right now we'd rather do something like, I don't know, get inside this guy's body and cause torment. 
We'd rather go someplace else. So don't send us off into our judgment yet. Can you understand what's happening here? Is Jesus is coming across a man who ran to meet him. And this poor man, just want, he, he needs to be delivered. But as Jesus is saying, get out from this man to the spirits, there's still some, it's not happening right away. Not because Jesus isn't capable, but because the spirits are begging and pleading and, 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 and having a consultation with Jesus before they honor his request. They're like, leave us alone. Don't torture us. In the name of God, they said, don't torture us. And they beg him. And then they, and he, they tell him his, their name. And then Jesus is like, get out. And they're like, please, 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 again and again. Meanwhile, this poor guy who's been afflicted for how long? We don't know. Jesus is watching this human that he cares about, still afflicted, while the spirits are still begging to not be sent away. Well, that brings us to verse 11. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Now, when you'll see in a minute here, it was a large. This is not Farmer Jones and his four pigs in his pen. This is a massive operation. This is a massive operation outside of the Decapolis area, a, a, a whole business, a large herd of pigs. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. Interesting request, isn't it? What's interesting is what Jesus does. Verse 13 says, so Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake or the sea there, into the lake, and drowned in the water. They just come running down. Now, again, there's 2,000 pigs. That's a lot. That's a lot of pigs. And again, we don't know, does that mean that there were 2,000 demons because they went into the pigs? So legion, that's a thousand, right? Again, does the number even matter? I imagine if a whole bunch of pigs in a herd got demon-possessed and started acting crazy, probably the whole herd's going to go crazy, right? Either way, they all went charging down the mountain, off the steep embankment, into the water, and they all drowned. Wow. And of course, you know, then you read the story and you're like, aw, poor, poor pigs, right? Like, you know, isn't that how we are? Like, you know, aw, the animals. Like, you know, they're cute. I don't know if they're cute or not, but the pigs. Babe was in there. I don't know. Um, oh, I was ruining someone's day. Okay, but here's the thing. Um, it's just, <laughs> here's the story, and you're like, what in the world? And that's how we are, right? Because we, do, we know this, whoa. We know this when we, watch, when we watch TV, don't we? We know this when we, watch, um, when we watch movies or read books. What is it about us? We could be watching a show on TV where people are getting killed, and we're like, oh, that guy just died. Okay, uh, pass the popcorn. Oh, you know, keep eating. But then an animal, an animal gets hurt or dies, and we're like, oh, no, the animal got hurt, you know? Something bad happened to the animal. Why is that? Is it because we think animals are innocent and people are just horrible, right? So they probably deserve to die, all the bad people. Um, and, and some people, it's not just TV. And I, look, I'm not throwing stones. I, that's me. That's me with old yeller, you know? It bothers me still. So, but besides entertainment, some people in real life, they're that way. They'd rather see a person get hurt than an animal. If someone hurts an animal, they should be killed. And if someone ever gets themselves in a place where they're in the wild and an animal hurts them, they'll be like, man, now they're going to put the animal down because he hurt a person. That stupid person, he deserved to die. What is it about people and culture that we don't value human life as much as we do animal life? Because again, maybe the animals seem innocent to us and the people seem bad. But it's interesting as you read the scriptures and stories like this that you see something that we ought to remember along the way. And I'm just not, this is not a... This is just a little thought. That God values human life. 
that, that we read the story of creation and how he made everything and he made it, you know, all life. But he made human life and he made us, man and women, in his image. We are image bearers, folks. We are image bearers of our creator. And as humans, we were put here to have dominion and to subdue the earth. And, and we were made in the image of God and God always values human life. And in this story, for example, here's a man who is tormented possessed for years, and no one knew what to do with this guy. No one knew what to do with this guy. But here's Jesus coming along saying, I care that this human, this man, this image bearer is set free. And in saying, come out of this man, come out of this man, there's a dialogue going on, and they're begging him, don't do this, don't do this, please, please, I beg you in God's name, don't do this. And finally, like, let us go to the pigs. And Jesus could have said, no, go to the bottomless pit. But for whatever reason, Jesus says, fine, just get out, just go. And whatever we want to surmise from that part of the story, however we want to break that down, I think it's a good reminder to all of us, at the very least, of the value of human life in the sight of God. Don't forget that. Don't overlook that. As imagers, that God values the, the human life and, and cared about this man, was way more concerned about this man than he was this other situation. He just says, set him free. Just an observation. Don't we think we should rush past? Anyhow, verse 14, the herdsmen, that'd be the people who are watching the pigs. I'm sure the job of being a pig herder is probably not, you know, the first job you circle in the uh, help wanted section. I don't know. Um, probably not like watching sheep. Who knows? But the herdsmen watching the pigs, the herdsmen, there's a lot of them there, by the way. That's a big operation, 2,000 pigs. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. They're spreading the news. In other words, they're running to the cities. They're running to the Decapolis area. And they're stopping along the way. Hey, did you hear what happened? I'll catch up, guys. Did you hear what happened? And then people are rushing back to the cemetery because the crazy guy, they all knew about the, cra the crazy guy. They're rushing back to the cemetery to see what just happened. I mean, you know, they didn't have cable anyhow, you know. They're rushing back to see what happened. Verse 15 says this, A crowd, a crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, fully clothed and perfectly sane. And they were all afraid. Kind of like the same words that Jesus had. Remember when Jesus was um, on the boat and he said, peace be still to the storm. And the disciples were like, whoa, the storm was scary. But it's scary that you could say that. They were terrified. Well, now these people are all freaked out too. Because this man was scary to them. But now he's better. Who's this Jesus? Because he's sitting there at Jesus. This guy who they were howling, cutting himself, naked and homeless and couldn't be constrained by, by, by chains is now sitting there perfectly sane in his right mind and he's fully clothed. And they're like, what just happened? Verse 16, then those who had seen what happened, <laughs> that's the thing, those who were there, those who were watching the pigs or maybe just happened to be in the area, those who saw what happened, well, they told the others about the demon-possessed man and what Jesus did and the pigs and what Jesus did. And that brings us to verse 17. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and to leave them alone. Isn't that interesting? 
the crowd began to say to Jesus, go away. Just go. Leave us alone. Why? Why would they want him to leave? Well, maybe, was it maybe because of fear? Someone would say, well, maybe it was fear because of his power. Well, I can, I can understand that. But here's the thing. Wasn't that power better than the fear of that crazy man all those years that no one could control? It was dangerous. I mean, isn't this a good power that Jesus showed? By the way, let me say this to you. It's not even consistent with the rest of the Bible. Over and over again in Jesus' narrative, I mean, in the, in the gospel stories, over and over again, Jesus would go to different places and he would do the same type of things. He would heal the sick, feed the hungry. He would cast out devils and evil spirits. And whenever Jesus did that in other places, do you know what the reaction usually was? They wouldn't say, get out of here. They'd say, Jesus, stay here, hold on, and they'd bring other sick people to him. They would, if he did leave, they'd follow him. They wanted to be near the guy that could cast out the devils and could heal the sick and could feed the hungry. So this is an odd reaction. If fear was the cause, wouldn't they be thrilled? Wouldn't they bring the guy back to the town and show off his, his freedom and show Jesus off who helped him and have a party and bring other people to Jesus to be helped? Why did this group say go away? Was it, was it the, uh, was something else? Perhaps it was the anger over the economic issues? Listen, you talk about economic loss. They had economic loss in that moment there. Look, picture this in our area. If the steel mills up north here shut down, a lot of people lose their jobs and their incomes for their family, right? But it's not just the people at the steel mills, for example, who lose their job when that happens. It's the businesses who sell gasoline to the people in the steel mills. It's the grocery stores that sell groceries to the people who work in the steel mills. Right, you get the idea. It's the restaurants that serve food. Like the economy, it trickles to everybody else when something happens, right? Likewise, when a business like Amazon just came to town over here, when a business comes into the area and hires a bunch of people, it's not just the jobs that they provide, it's the other jobs that happen because of those jobs. It helps an area. Things are domino, don't they? 2,000 pigs. Gone. Forget the, the poor, you know, loss of animals. This is, this is a shock. They're off the deep. They're dead. They're flo- they can still see the bodies of the pigs floating in the water. Huh? What's that? Do they float? I don't know. They're just out there in the water. And so, was it the economic loss? I mean, this would affect the whole city. This would affect that every herdsman, that's his job. Well, don't need you Tuesday, Ralph. <laughs> you know, since there's no more pigs. I mean, this affects the people who own the pigs. It affects the people who are waiting for their BLT that day or the next day. Right? I'm just saying, are the people who sell the products. I mean, this is, this is an impact. So, so in this story here, they're looking at Jesus saying, leave us alone. Leave. Go away. Is, is financial income in this story, perhaps, is, is income and financial opportunity more important than human life? You helped this guy? Well, yeah, but we were kind of used to that. We just kind of stayed away. We tried to help him, but just, we just let him be. So you, you helped him, okay, but, but the pigs. Is income and economic loss and, and, and opportunity more important than human life? That's the question for you and me, by the way. Let me just needle us a little bit here. That's the question for you and me. We just talked about finances for the last four weeks. That's a question for you and me to wrestle down. Is income and financial opportunity more important to you and me than human life? You know the answer is yes, it is, whenever we do something dishonest in business to win. 
Whenever we take advantage of somebody financially so we can have a little bit more money. Whenever we're dishonest in our business dealings. Or we, 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 we say some bad something about somebody to make them lose their job or their position so that we can have the opportunity. Or we undercut somebody to put a few extra dollars in our pocket. When we are dishonest because we value income and financial source more than we do human life, maybe that's something we all ought to look at and ask ourselves, are we guilty on our own scale of the same thing? I hope not. But anyhow, they're like, Jesus, leave. Go away. Leave us alone. Either way, either way, Jesus obliged them. Jesus got in the boat and left. When Jesus arrived, it was the demon-possessed man saying, leave me alone. And Jesus didn't listen. You know why? Because he knew the guy wasn't the one talking. It was the evil spirits. He says, no, I'm not leaving him alone. I'm going to set him free. But now the whole city's like, leave us alone. And Jesus is like, fine. But isn't it interesting how fast the good people, you know, the rational, respectable citizens of the cities, perhaps the religious people even, end up looking a lot like, at the, at the heart level, look an awful lot like those crazy, bad, horrible people like this man. Because they're all like, the respectable people are like, well, we, we're not like this crazed person, you know, demon-possessed person, these people who are broken with problems in life, the addicted, the messed up, the, the, the screwed up people in the world. We're not like them. We're not this crazy guy. Respectable, honest people, perhaps religious people, we're much better than that, right? Just, just shake your head and talk about him. Can you believe that guy is so messed up? We're better, we're respectable. But what's interesting is that when Jesus got involved and got to the heart of it, something else revealed itself. That that man who under the spiritual oppression was saying, leave me alone. And Jesus is like, that's not you talking, buddy. That's not you talking. You need to be set free. They're like, yeah, yeah. He's saying, leave him alone because he's messed up. But those same people, once their pig industry took a big hit, are standing there in front of Jesus saying, leave us alone. Same thing the demon-possessed man had. Isn't it interesting that in the end of the story, the respectable people had the same outlook to Jesus that the person they considered to be messed up and possessed had towards Jesus at first? Isn't it interesting what does it take in our lives for something to happen to show the true us? Because I think that sometimes in Christian and religious people, at our core level, we are guilty of a prosperity gospel. You know what I'm talking about? The kind of gospel that says, you know, as long as God, if I do the right thing, God will bless me and make me rich. And again, I talked about the importance of following Bible principles for wealth, and you know that. But here's the thing. That, that mentality is dangerous because we think that somehow following Jesus makes me entitled and then all of a sudden when life happens and things happen and, and the rug gets pulled out from underneath me, and what do we do in those moments when life doesn't go your way? When, when God lets something happen that's good for somebody else but bad for you? When God lets something happen that in your life when it doesn't go your way, when your prayer doesn't get answered, when hardships come that you didn't want, do we turn around and say, well, what good is God to me then? What good is the gospel? What good is faith? You know what, God, just stay away and leave me alone if that's how it's going to be. Sometimes it takes hardships of life to reveal in us something, something in us that's no better than this demon-possessed man was. It's just hidden by civilization and culture and knowing how to look the part. But what's in our hearts? Well, Jesus obliged them. He left. Verse 18 says this, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed 
begged him to go with him. The demon-possessed man said, Jesus, let me get in the boat and go with you. And by the way, that was very normal. You know this, right? That Jesus oftentimes helped people who wanted to follow him afterwards. Like when Jesus would help, um, when Jesus would help people, I mean, he called his disciples. But there was more than 12 disciples. There were sometimes dozens and even hundreds of people that followed Jesus around when he helped them or they just liked what he had to say or do. And this man was one man who wanted to go with Jesus and the boat. But Jesus tells him something maybe unexpected. Look at verse number 19. But Jesus said, no, no. Go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. Well, isn't that, a, isn't that an interesting statement? First of all, go home to your family. When he says go home to your family, he doesn't necessarily mean your wife if he had one, maybe had one still, who knows, right, at this point, or kids if he had any, or his parents who were probably God knows where. He didn't just mean his immediate family. He meant, he meant his kinsfolk. He meant his hometown, didn't he? He meant his people, his heritage, his hometown. In other words, in fact, some Bible translations even say that he says, go home to your friends. Because the idea is the same. Go home to your hometown, to your people, to your heritage, to your kinsfolk. Go home to your town. And tell everyone you know, tell everybody what God has done for you. And tell them how merciful he's been. Hey, let them know what God has done. Isn't that interesting? By the way, the man does it. It says in verse 20, So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region, and he began to proclaim the great things that Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he told them. Jesus is like, you want to follow me? Don't follow me into this boat. Follow me by going to that city that doesn't want me here, and telling them and telling all these towns around here what I did, and the difference I made and the mercy I showed you. In other words, the man, the man in the story, the man who was healed from his possession, he could do the most good for Christ there where he was from in a place where Christ was not welcomed. And that's an important lesson for all of us, isn't it? Because I've been around the church world my whole life and the religious people my whole life, and I know how some of us get. I know some people who call ourselves Christians. I know how we get. We're all like, bless God, this whole world doesn't like our God. They reject my Savior, my God, so they can burn. You know, we all isolate ourselves in our church houses, little, our little holy huddles. We get our little holy huddles together. We're like, ah, culture's so bad. In other words, we're so good. And we get together and we, we, sh- we don't maybe say the word shun, but we kind of shun people. We push people away. We're like, I'm just shaking the dust off my feet like the disciples once did. And kind of taking that context a certain way. Look what happened here. In this story here, Jesus is like, hey, I'm not welcomed here. So get in the boat. Let's go, buddy. Let's leave those people. Let them burn. Right? Uh-uh. Jesus is like, go back to the place I'm not welcome at. And he did, and he made a difference. And here's what I'm trying to say. It's so important here for all of us. That, that, that we tend to isolate ourselves in a world, but maybe instead we could try to show people and show others around us what a difference that God has made in our lives. Maybe if we could go out there and engage the world around us and engage with people and, and know them and, and, be, and be, show, show the difference that God is making, that Jesus has made in our lives. 
so that community can see people that they know and work with that are, that are pleasant and we're kind and we're honest in our business dealings even when others are dishonest and being honest can cost me something, but I'm still honest. And we're, and we're, and we're um, committed even in a world where people are not committed. We're faithful to our commitments. And even in a world where people are um, having a horrible time with relationships, we have relationships with humility and grace that honor God and how we love each other. And as we go out in the world, we're kind to people in an unkind and cruel world. And when people are not kind to us, we are forgiving, which is very anti-natural. And when we have troubles in our lives, instead of being depressed, we're full of joy. Even when we're down about them a little bit, we still have a joy that oversees it all. And when there's storms in our life, we're peaceful. And how could you have peace in the storm? But we do, because we're out there saying something's different, and God is the one who made a difference, and I'm not hiding that. I'm engaging it. Because Jesus is the light of the world. We're called to be, he told us before he left, you're the light of the world. You reflect my light. You show light. There's an old proverb, an old proverb, so it goes way back. It says, better, better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. A lot of people have quoted that and been given credit for it, but it's been around a long time. Better to light a candle than curse the darkness. So easy to sit back and say, ah, God doesn't welcome him. Well, if, that's tr- if that's true, if that's really the case, if that's, not, if that's not hyperbole because someone doesn't do life the way you do it or doesn't view, you know, whatever, politics or life or anything the way you do, doesn't mean, doesn't mean that, but, but if you're right in this darkness and they reject God, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. That's what Jesus said to this man. They don't want me there. They need, they need, they need the good news. You go be the good news. You go be the light. Here's what I'm, I'm trying to say. We have an opportunity. And I've noticed this in my whole life. i got to wrap this up soon because i got to go. But here's what I want to say. I've noticed that in my life there's a lot of people who confuse being pro-Christ with being anti-culture. I mean, pro-Christ means I'm anti-culture. And I guess there are times, like in the story here, where the people said, get out to Jesus. Sometimes being pro-Christ will make you at moments anti-culture. But that's not an equivalency. Be honest with you, being pro-Christ in his day made him anti-religious people. Jesus fought the religious people more than anybody. So if you really want to argue, you can make the same argument that being pro-Christ is being anti-religion. But that wouldn't fit the narrative for us. So, um, But being anti-culture, maybe being pro-Christ would make us that way at times. But that's not, the, that's not an equivalency. The problem is, is that I think along the way, Christians found themselves at times at odds with the world that we live in. And thought that's what Christianity is all about. And so at some point, we figured it's easier to be anti-culture than it is to be for Christ. Being for Christ means I have to, I don't know, walk with him and listen to him and do it on the inside and out what he's doing in my life. It's much easier just to be against everybody and everything and just be an angry old person ranting about things. That's easier. And I'll call that Christianity and I'll put God's name on it so I feel better because I'm a Christian because I'm a best. I'm a best. That's easier. But that's not what it's about. And the problem is, is because the church has done that for so long, a lot of people have come into the church world who are drawn not because really being pro-Christ. They're drawn because they want to find a club to be anti-culture in the name of God. And that's not helpful. That's why we're so shallow. That's why why we lost our testimony in this world because we've got our whole messaging mixed up. I want to be for Christ. And Jesus says, hey, go out and be that light. But they don't want you. If that's true, then they need you and me. To go out and show us something better, kinder, more loving, more hopeful, more good.
And then to say, Jesus did that in my life and he can do it for you too. We gotta change our tone. So let me close with a statement here. Light is most needed in the darkness. It is. So listen, be that light. We say it all the time at Lighthouse Church. You've heard me say it so many times. For far too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we are for. We are for Cedar Lake. We are for our community. We are for the people because God is for them. We've got to go out there and be light in a dark world. We don't huddle up, isolate ourselves, and think that somehow we're doing a good thing. No, sir, no, ma'am. Most, light is most needed in the darkness, and it's our job and our Savior's calling to us to go out into the world and to do more than just get together and feel better about ourselves. It's to go out and do something, make a difference, help people, serve, show, tell, and be the light. Let's do that.